wild finish in Oakland and the series is tied in the West. And there's trouble in Minnesota. Maybe Carl Anthony Towns wants out. The all rookie teams are unveiled. And is LeBron James slow? Uh, we're not slow on the Lockdown NBA podcast because we're previewing game five of the Eastern Conference Finals. It's all coming up here. Lockdown NBA. Let's go. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, lots to get to here. Let's just set this up by telling you who we are. I am John Corrales, co-host of Locked On Celtics, and a Boston Celtics contributor to Boston.com, co-founder of RedsArmy.com. And I'm Jake Madison, host of Locked On Pelicans, at Nola Jake on Twitter, and you can find me over at LockedOnPelicans.com. So you heard everything we've got coming up already. Let's dive into a 95-92 Rockets win in Oakland. This what? was weird. They, like, yeah, I think that's the best way to describe this, right? Just kind of like, what the hell went on at the end of this game? It was, I can't believe, like, the Warriors blew a 12-point fourth quarter lead. So they came storming out to a 12-0 lead uh, in right off the bat, 12 nothing before we knew it. And it was like, oh, boy, here we go. Warriors just going to destroy the Rockets. Looked like it was going to be one of those, another one of these non-competitive conference finals games. But Rockets, to their credit, came back. They had a monster second quarter. The Warriors had their typical monster third quarter. Let's a, a, a monster third quarter, I by mean, the way. It looked, there were a couple moments, like you said, where it was like, yeah, Warriors going to run away with this one. And a 34 to 17 third quarter when Steph Curry just got hot usually is when you start to feel that way. Yeah. There were, there were probably at least three or four times in this game where I was like, well, that was fun, Houston. That was really cute. You, you played along. We, we enjoyed the run and it just, the Warriors felt, and maybe this is the problem with the Warriors that the Warriors all season long, have been kind of like, eh, whatever, we'll turn it on when we have to. And then they, they're they so used to shutting it off that in the fourth quarter with uh, up 12, they shut it off. And the war, the, the, I'm sorry, the Rockets to their credit were just not willing to roll over. They were not, if there was a knock on the Rockets, if there's a knock on Chris Harden, it's that they wilt under pressure and they didn't. And you can give a lot of credit for, to Chris Paul for that, who had a a huge, huge game. Overall, 27 points on 10 of 20 shooting. Uh, he was just clutch down the stretch. His fourth quarter numbers, amazing. Eight points, uh, three of seven shooting in the fourth quarter, two assists, two rebounds. I mean, he was a plus 13 in that fourth quarter. He played almost the whole thing. Uh, actually, I think he did play the whole thing. So it just – Chris Paul – He's he's basically your James Harden insurance. That's why you get a guy like him because James Harden in the fourth quarter was one of four for two points, and maybe that, some of that's because Chris Paul went off. But uh, bottom line is the the Warriors kind of let go, the let go of the rope, as the cliche goes, and lots of kind of weird decisions in this. Why did the Warriors not bring Sean Livingston back in? 
That's a huge one. Like yeah. the, the the whole fourth quarter, we could almost dissect because it it looked like both teams were drunk at one point and just kind of <laughs> chucking shots. I mean, Golden State scored twelve points in the fourth. I mean, come on. And you see them, and maybe it's what you talked about, where they kind of just turn it off and they don't remember to turn it back on or don't know how to turn it back on. You see a lot of weird isolation basketball. Maybe that's because it's Durant wanting to do that and they're kind of deferring to him, and the other guys don't get in a rhythm, so their shots are off a little bit, but it's a lot just more stagnant basketball, one-on-one isolation, not passing, not generating those really good open looks, and it made them feel out of sorts, and then that culminates with they have a chance to kind of tie the game or, or get the winning shot. I forget the score there. And you've got Clay Thompson trapped in a corner. You've With five seconds left, you have a timeout, and Kerr doesn't take it. What were they thinking? Yeah, so I, I think in that situation, they were down two. So they only needed a two to tie. You you probe the defense that isn't set. So Durant gets the ball, comes flying up the floor, should be looking for either a, you know a, a layup to tie it up, and you, then you play defense, or then you whatever. Maybe you get a three, whatever it is. If the, if you don't get it when you're probing, then you call the timeout. That is just that's it's. What you do? It's a no-brainer. Like I, I just don't understand that. There's no excuse. You you can say you don't call the timeout immediately because you don't want to have that defense set. I understand that with a team like the Warriors. In fact, I encourage that. You take Durant, put the ball in his hands against a retreating defense, and you go. And now, okay, nothing happened. Then Clay Thompson gets the ball and he's stuck. And two guys on him. Time out. Just time out there. You, that you are in a complete disadvantage at that point. So luckily, luckily for them, that they get a foul call with point five left, and Chris Paul misses the first one. Now, this is the next thing. I feel like there's so many bad decisions. Yeah, like right at the end of this game was really bizarre basketball. I, and I'm I'm kind of in the middle at the same time uh, having a discussion with a friend of mine about do you, when you are now up three with .5 left, do you miss that free throw, that second free throw, or, or I'm sorry, you're up two. Do you miss that second free throw and hope that you hit the rim, or do you make it like Chris Paul did? Let me ask you your opinion. What do you think? You know, so I think this is an easy decision if you're not playing the Warriors, and I think you miss it. .5 for, you know, basically a full-court shot to then win the game or lose the game, depending on how you look at it. I guess mo- most teams. They oh, that's a good point, too. But, but even then, you're going to hope that – because Kerr didn't take one. He knew it all along. Um yeah, if you call the timeout, then you're going to be left with point three, maybe, and that's all you need, I guess. But I don't, I don't know. So it's I, a weird situation to be put in. I think you miss it though. But then against the Warriors, it's making me second guess this, which is why I shouldn't be a coach, and just shows that this isn't as cut and dry as we want to think it is. But I still also think it kind of is. Here's here's what I do. I completely, without hesitation, I say you miss the free throw at that point because. It's not like your typical missed free throw situation where you're down. A lot of times when you miss a free throw intentionally, you're down. You need to get it back. That's when guys just 
try to catch people by surprise and you flick it. You, you know, you know that thing that people do. They flick it towards the rim and so they can get it back. Yeah. You, you, you don't need to do that here. It's no, it, that's five. part of it. You're up to it's point five. You just want the ball to touch somebody so it, the clock can start. It doesn't matter if you get the ball back. What you, the only thing you don't want is for them to get a clean rebound and a timeout. But what's the worst case scenario? If they get a clean rebound and a timeout, they get the ball back at the same amount of time. Now I guess the worst case is you're up two versus up three and they can only tie it. But at the same time, the odds to me, if you just focus on hitting the rim, not just, you don't have to take your, you don't have to surprise anybody. You can make a big announcement. I am missing this free throw. And you just casually chest past it towards the rim and it's going to tip somebody in the hand and that will end the game. But it that doesn't matter. I don't want to spend too much time on that. No, it was just an interesting decision and ultimately it ended up being okay for Houston. So it, it's kind of one of those situations. But yeah, that at the time was interesting. I don't know. This was a weird game though because when you look at it it's you kind of feel like how did Houston actually pull this one off given the runs that the Warriors went on? And one thing I want to ask you about what you think here is Gerald Green played some <laughs> tremendous defense in like 12 minutes of play. Dude was a plus 14 by the way, which is pretty nuts. And the Rockets only played seven guys. Green's defense in 11 minutes might have been the difference in this game for Houston. I I know, right? And for a guy that at, in the third quarter or early on in the fourth, it felt like he was the reason why they were going to lose because he was making, uh, he was taking some really, really, really bad, bad shots. Shots. I mean, they, there was, uh, he took two three pointers, like just quick trigger three pointers at the end of the third quarter. But, you know, he, like, you gotta give the guy credit that, and the whole, the whole Rockets team credit. That they were able to contain the biggest threats on the, on the, uh, Warriors. That Kevin Durant still finished the game with 27, but only on 9 of 24 shooting. And in the fourth quarter, really 1 of 5, 0 of 3 from 3. He was pressing the, the pressure that he got. Both, you know, Joe Green, Chris Paul had a very good defensive, uh, stand on Kevin Durant. It was a, a good solid, team effort from the Rockets and I, I you got to give the Rockets the credit for playing a, that level of defense uh, in a situation where historically they have wilted in the past and that that's there, there's something to be said about that I, I really do feel like the Warriors expected when they were up 12 to kind of walk away with it and the the Rockets, to their credit, and again behind Chris Paul, really managed to continue to chip away, play good defense, which is not a, it is a Rockets, they're, it's a Rockets staple this year, but. No, it has been, and they, but they haven't shown it particularly, say, in the playoffs or in this series so far, but this was by far, I think, and I've watched a lot of their games this year, as we all have, that this is some of the best defense I think I've seen them play as a team, like you just mentioned, all season long. They did a tremendous job all around. Part of it, I think, is aided by Golden State not playing their way. Golden State, in a, in a game where 
Houston shoots under 40% for Golden State to only have eight points in the fast break is not what they want to do at all. But that also shows how Houston was just kind of pushing right at them and trying to take away those transition opportunities and overloading Durant when he was starting to run at him. And you kind of look at this and you're like, oh, wow, when they play defense, they're they're starting to get more towards a really complete, very, very good team. Yeah, and it shows because here we are with the series tied at two. So uh, I, I got it. There were so many times, like I said, that I thought this thing was done and that the Warriors were like, all right, we're, we're going to just do our thing. Uh, there are questions now that Steve Kerr has to answer. The note, the lack of timeout and keeping Looney in the game for as much as he did are going to be questions that I'm sure as we're recording this, I'm sure he's on the podium there at answering the question, but he's going to, it's going to be written about. It's going to be talked about and it's going to be interesting to see. Are there any adjustments that the, the Warriors have to make going into Houston? Because Houston, now we're going into that scenario of Houston playing better at home. They stole one on the road. Obviously, the Warriors stole one on the road as well. Can the Warriors go back in there after this recover? And do, do they make any adjustments? Or is the potential of getting Andre Iguodala back enough to say, if we go and play our game, then we should be okay winning this thing in six? You know, those are really good questions, actually. So, like, the first adjustment, I think, if you look at this team, you've got to say is, okay, don't play so much isolation ball. Get out and run in transition like you do. Get back to more of the ball movement. And as I'm pulling up the NBA uh, page right now, a lot of that tracking data, which we're going to talk about in a minute, isn't out there yet. So you can't see the passes that they've done. You can't see kind of what they were running just in terms of that, which I think is kind of important to look at here because it was too much isolation. And, you know, again, you can become an easier to defend team if you're doing that. And Houston in this game did a really good job of it. Also, getting Iguodala back would seriously help. I think Looney, for as good as he's been in these playoffs, they played him way too much in this game, and you saw it hurting them. They'd rather get someone with a little more athleticism out there, which would seriously help. So I think if all of a sudden Iguodala gets back, that's going to be a big thing, and I think that can maybe shift it back into the Warriors' favor. But like you said, now all of a sudden Houston has home court advantage again. Instead of it being a seven-game series, they're looking at a three-game series, and that's a whole lot easier to get two games out of three than it is four out of seven if you're considering them the worst team. So I think they're looking at the situation and have to be feeling pretty good right now. Now. Yeah, they do. Look, they they have home court again. They they've got this confidence of beating the Warriors on the road, which I'm sure does wonders for them. Um, and look, the the Warriors kind of choked down the stretch. We haven't even talked about all of the three pointers. They were down 94, 91, I believe it was, and they were chucking three pointers as if they were down six. They were down three. They were really almost looking panicked. Yeah, I think that kind of sums it up really well. You know, it depends on where you want to put the narrative of this game, whether it was Houston and their defense and their resiliency. And, look, only a tough team is going to be able to withstand that third quarter that Golden State put out there because that was brutal, and they just look like destroyer of worlds right there. But then you also have Golden State making it kind of easy for Houston to defend and to just keep chipping away and getting back in this game, and that's not what they want to do. You've got to step on the throats of Houston and just keep – 
pressing. And I don't know, maybe if it was the isolation ball that they were playing slowed the game down, which maybe favors Houston a little bit more and all of that. But they didn't look like themselves. They didn't look like the Warriors. And their biggest adjustment just needs to be getting back to being themselves. At the risk of going long, you know, <laughs> actually, <laughs> let's just let's just wrap it up there because David Locke will have much more on this tomorrow. There will be plenty to be said about this on future shows and, and before we get to the game five. So we are going to move on to the next, uh, the next segment. But before we do, I just want to get a quick promotion for the Locked On Celtics show, which we have Rachel Nichols on right now. It's live on LockedOnCelltics.com. Uh, the jump host, Rachel Nichols, uh, joins me for a conversation for about 15 minutes or so. Uh, it's, it's quick, but it's good. It's, we go, we, we go more in depth than, than you would think in 15 minutes. We talk about, obviously, the Eastern Conference Finals. We talk about Paul Pierce and, and hosting the jump. And we talk about, uh, women in the NBA, her as a, a bit of a trailblazing woman hosting a, a really good NBA show. So check that out on LockedOnCelltics.com. Okay, while the playoffs are going on, we've got rumor season that is starting to kick in, and I think one of the more, I guess, ridiculous rumors, Jake, is this thing that's going around. It's a Brian Windhorse-fueled rumor about Carl Anthony Towns and some tension, we'll say, in Minnesota between him and Tom Thibodeau, and now teams are starting to call the Wolves because that's what happens. Basically, there are 30 NBA teams. They're all vultures circling the landscape, waiting to see if the carcass of some relationship exists on the floor, and then they're going to go try to swoop on it and feast on it. And that right now seems to be the Carl Anthony Town situation in Minnesota. It's There is something real, I think, to at least Thibodeau and Towns maybe didn't see eye-to-eye 100% of the time, but come on. Let's get real here. He's not going anywhere. No, probably not, though. That's not going to stop me from spending the entire day on the trade machine trying to figure (laughs) out how I can go not twin towers but triple towers here in New Orleans with Cousins, Towns, and AD. We're just going to take all the Kentucky centers. But, no, like they're not going to trade him. He's under contract. There's no need to, you know. And I think this is maybe one of those things where it could be reading a little bit too much into it. But these are are reputable people saying this sort of thing. But when you and I were, were doing our quick prep work before this and we were discussing to bringing this topic on, it doesn't surprise me given the situation and given that Thibodeau's the head coach there because this is just kind of what happens a little bit with him, which probably has to do with his style more than anything else. Yeah, probably. And let's think about back to, to Minnesota and how their season ended, which was a whole lot of conversation about why is Carl Anthony Towns just barely posting up? Why is he rushing out to the corner? And everybody was saying that the, when Minnesota needed baskets from Towns, they didn't, or needed baskets, they didn't get them from Towns. They, no, not at all. They relied on their guards, and the it seemed like the game plan was to have Carl's spread the floor because he's one of those big guys that can spread the floor, and just let the guards penetrate and and whatever. That's you got it. You know. You know, especially from having Anthony Davis, from having a big that can do all of those things, you have to feature that guy. 
Yeah, 100%. They weren't getting him the ball. And also, you know, this, this might have to do with some of the players that Thibodeau's playing too, where they're, they're not necessarily the likeliest to pass up out of something. So it, like, I get it. Maybe this is just reading a little too much into it with hearing there's a little bit of smoke here. And I think part of it also might have to do with the way Thibs runs his practices, which are just well known around the league of like three hour practices almost on a daily basis at times. And no NBA player, let alone younger NBA players, want to go through something like that. So that's probably worth mentioning as well. Uh, so yeah, you, you've got to feature him. That was the guy who should have kind of carried your team. Yes, you've got Butler there, but you need to go out and get him the ball down low, especially when you need to grind out some games, which they definitely needed to do at times. Yeah, so I think if there's any smoke in Minnesota, let's be honest, it will be under the hot seat of Tom Thibodeau because there is zero, 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 zero chance that they trade Carl Anthony Towns on his rookie contract. That would, it's foolish. You, it's, it's the most, and, and it, because he's on his rookie contract, it just makes it so ridiculous that we're even having this conversation to, to some degree because you can't possibly get back the value from for for Carl Anthony Towns even if you decided that it was the move but it's not Tom no. so like uh, Matt Moore at HP Basketball on Twitter had the best tweets so you fire everybody you fire the concession stand guys before you fire you get rid of Carl Anthony Towns he's just a transcendent talent you give him the money you get somebody else in there that knows how to use him and you feature him and you pull out some of the aggressiveness and you turn him into a an Anthony Davis style featured player with that unique skill set of his. No, it should be. Okay, so let me ask you, what do you think do you I don't know if you have him up in front of you. What if you had to guess where his points per game in the playoffs here? Oh, in the playoffs they're probably low. They're probably like 14 Not great. 15. Yeah, 15 points, which is about the same amount as Wiggins since I just accidentally pulled him up. So the, you've got a guy who he should be averaging more than 15 well, he points should be per game. Like 26 or 27. Yeah, but, and, and it's on 12 field goal attempts per game. That's not enough. No, not at all. Not at all. That's on him some, but it's on Thibs. Some. It's on everybody. It's on everybody. Yeah. Minnesota, ha- it's going to be interesting to see what Minnesota does because they have incentive to run it back, but they also have incentive to make changes. And I, I just really feel like they're they're going to miss an opportunity. They're going to waste this kid's prime. And, look, he's going to re-sign probably because they can offer him a ton of money. They should offer him a ton of money. But they have I mean, contractual mistakes already. Yeah, and no no rookie's going to turn down that mini max deal coming up after the rookie year, uh, after the rookie scale contract ends. I don't know if we've really ever seen that, and that would probably be a huge mistake. You can always force a trade later. Get your money, kid. That's right. Okay, let's we we've given that enough credence. Let's get to a couple other topics here that have emerged on uh, for this Wednesday show. The all rookie teams are out. And so, a couple of interesting things, uh, you know, look, first of all, first team, Donovan Mitchell, Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, Kyle Kuzma, Kuzma, Larry Markkinen, not bad. Uh I would have maybe, you know, look, second team, Dennis Smith, Lonzo Ball, John Collins, uh Bogdanovich in Sacramento and Josh Jackson. Josh Jackson. There you go. Without the mush mouth. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> even had a drink. But, uh, so the interesting thing to me from a Boston guy's perspective is that Jason Tatum, a finalist for rookie of the year, got 99 out of 100 votes. Mitchell and Simmons were unanimous. Some guy put Jason Tatum 
on the second team. <laughs> I'm assuming it's the guy who put Jackson on the first team. <laughs> oh yeah, when you're home. looking at, I'm looking at it now. That makes a ton of sense. Actually, I'm sure that somebody in Phoenix was like, "Nah, I don't think so." I think I think this guy who led the NBA in three point shooting is behind a guy whose shooting splits this season were 41, uh, 40. Uh, let's see, uh, I'm sorry, 26 from three and 63 and a half from the line. Josh Jackson, nice, nice, okay season. Fine season. No, no, no criticism of Josh Jackson. I'm not going to get on him for anything, but come on. No, it, look, for the most part, I think these are right. I, I, you know, Mitchell and Simmons being unanimous first teamers, that sure. makes a ton of sense there. Tatum getting 99 out of 100, still pretty good, but yeah, could have been unanimous. Um, Kuzma on there, I got no problem with that. Marketing, no problem as well. You know, looking at the second team, maybe Josh Jackson's the one guy you actually do leave off of that, but you know, Dennis Smith Jr., Lonzo Ball, Collins, Bogdanovich, all those should be on there. It kind of just makes a lot of sense. Voters got this one right for the most part. Yeah, that's fine. You know, I mean, second team all rookie. Yeah, who cares? Uh, shout outs to my boy, uh, Shemi Ojale getting a vote, getting one all rookie team vote. Uh, win one for the combat muscle. That's a shout out to all my Boston Celtics listeners. That's an inside joke. Okay. So that's the, the all rookie. We want to throw that out there. Uh, whenever they announce the, those things, uh, on June, that whatever show that they do. It's terrible. We'll figure There's out. There's no we'll need. Yeah, no need for all that. We'll, we'll figure out who the voting was and we'll, we'll slam those people accordingly. All right. Last thing we mentioned before we preview game five of the Eastern Conference Finals. Very funny quote, I think, and I'm going to clean up the quote, but it's from LeBron James in The Athletic because Jason Lloyd tracked down some of the tracking data and it happens to show that he is uh, amongst the slowest players in the league. Now that's what the, the second spectrum tracking data takes a look at, they can track your speed and they can track how long you run, how far you run, how many miles. It's kind of, who knows how useful a lot of this stuff is, but whatever. So in this, in this piece, it found, and I'm quoting from the athletic directly, no one on the floor is running slower in this series against Boston than, than LeBron James. And who was also the second slowest in the entire postseason to which LeBron James responded. That's the dumbest ish I ever heard. That tracking bull can kiss my ass. The slowest guy, get out of here. Tell him to track how tired I am after that, after the game. Track that. I'm number one in the NBA on how tired I am after the game. Uh, I hate to tell LeBron, but tracking data is pretty accurate. You're not exactly blazing the trails out there. No, like, it's, that, that's fairly accurate. I think most people find these stats to be very relevant. That's also more just speed in terms of, how fast you're going. He is so big, he doesn't need to be the fastest guy out there. So I think that's part of it. So him being tired after the game isn't necessarily a reflection on him being slow. It's more, you know, I think you got to look at usage rate there, which, by the way, in the playoffs, he's got the third highest usage rate of his career in the playoffs in this postseason. So he's out there not being lazy, and he's doing work. He just can be so good that he doesn't need to be blindingly fast. That's it. It's fine. It's simple. I think for the just the sake of the quote, it was worth mentioning uh, because he seems legitimately pissed off. As diplomatic as he can be, even when he's bragging, he he's never like this. And he was pissed to hear that he was the slowest player in the series. But look, there's no secret. 
that throughout these playoffs that he does a lot of standing around. He doesn't move a lot when he doesn't have the ball. Now, in the past couple of games, we'll get to the preview in a second, the past couple of games against Boston, he's moved a little bit more. The first couple of games, he didn't. And he's been it's been obvious that, especially in the Indiana series, you saw him pass, wait, stand around, let them go do whatever they do, and then get the ball and then maybe shoot. That Look, it's fine. LeBron, you've been in the league forever. And the fact that you're even this good now is amazing. Nobody should be doing this stuff. People who have played as many minutes as LeBron, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, they're all retired. Yep. They're all retired, and he's out there dropping 40 like it's nothing. That's amazing. So who cares if they call you slow? That's fine. He's You're not winning a lot of foot races, LeBron. Yeah, that's all it is. And I I don't think he got that in the quote, to be fair for him. But, like, I think he was just like, what do you mean I'm not trying hard? And he is. We know he is. We've seen it because he is dropping points and putting up tremendous numbers like we've never seen for someone this age. And it's, frankly, unbelievable at times. So, yeah, LeBron, it's okay. Don't worry. We've got your back. Hilarious, hilarious stuff. Okay, before we go move on to the Game 5 preview, I want to remind everybody that there is a, if you're listening to this, a regular Locked On NBA podcast listener, there is a Locked On podcast for every one of your favorite teams. I am the host of Locked On Celtics. You better go check out Locked On Locked On Cavs. Uh, we talked earlier about the Warriors and the Rockets. There's a lockdown for each of those. So if even if you are not a fan of a particular team, you want to keep up with these series and whoever meets in the finals, subscribe to these local locked on team team podcasts because they will give you that local ground level uh, expert analysis, things that you just don't see because all of these hosts watch their teams incredibly every day, watch these games more than once. So you'll never get, a, a view of that team whenever something happens in the NBA. We just talked about Carl Anthony Towns. Go check out Locked on Timberwolves, and they will get you a very, very micro view of that situation, much more detailed than we can get on here. So go check out your favorite Locked on NBA team podcast on the Locked on Podcast Network. Celtics, Cavs, Game 5. You, want you to- nervous yet? No, no. Like, I- I've never... Been nervous in this series. I, I guess because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> you know, none of this matters. Uh, it, it's, if this was next year or if this was a full healthy, you know, Hayward, Kyrie squad and we were in this situation, like, oh, okay, here we go. This has been, even if they lose this series, even if they get, even if they lose in six, it'd be disappointing, but I, I've never really cared. And also on top of it, I didn't see anything in games three and four that made me say, oh, no, the Cavaliers have figured it out. What I saw was the Celtics playing like idiots in game three, feeling like they had read all of their clippings and were so high on themselves that they walked out there in game three and said, hey, we're the Celtics. You you lose to us now. We're here. You lose to us. And whenever they do that, they get smoked. Uh, and in the past, they've made comebacks. This is the, the difference from this in game three was they didn't even try to make a comeback. In game four, some of the same stuff. They played a little bit better. They didn't make a lot of shots. Uh, I, I think at home, the, the home road disparity in the series is so It's stark. huge. You, so you stark. called this 
last week when we were talking about it and you said role players are always going to play better at home, which is a fact, and we know this, and that's kind of what's happened for Cleveland. These other guys have really stepped up. They're playing better. Maybe it's because they are at home or what have you, and all of a sudden that's made a difference. You have guys like Korver who's hitting shots all of a sudden. J.R. Smith is hitting some shots. Tristan Thompson's playing better, and that hasn't been happening on the road, and when those guys are hitting shots and you do space the court like that for LeBron James, it is absolutely terrifying, and there's not much that any team in the world is going to be able to do. No, no. So the when LeBron's going like he's going, he, if he gets help, if he gets any help, you're in a, a lot of trouble. For Boston, I think the key for them is the ball movement, moving the ball, moving themselves, cutting, setting picks for one another, and forcing the Cavaliers' defense to make decisions. And the one big thing offensively that they did too much in Cleveland was too much individual play, too much trying to take advantage of mismatches. And what happens is Cleveland switches or a a Celtic finds himself, uh, very often Marcus Morris, but it's happened to Jalen Brown, it's happened to other guys. They feel like, I can take this guy. And they play this one-on-one, and they're guilty of it. They've been guilty of it. That's not the way to beat the Cavaliers' defense. You can't get past their their perimeter if you're moving the ball and you're you're just catching and moving and going. But the Cavaliers' weakness is making decisions on defense. If you put them into rotation, they will screw up a rotation. Someone will mess up, and then everybody will stop, and you get the open look. That is true. That's been true. These playoffs, if you can just put them in rotation, they will inevitably break down, and Boston just hasn't done that enough. Now, Tristan Thompson has done a very good job on Al Horford, and he's been a big reason that the Celtics have been able to move the ball. They'll have to figure out getting screens and figure out how to get Al Horford a little bit more mobile. I think, but I think really honestly, Boston just has to move, move the ball, move themselves, get cuts, and, and they will find seams in what is still a not great, not even good Cleveland defense. No, it's not. And we've, we've seen that all year that their defense has been bad. And I'm glad you brought that up. And all of a sudden you see Boston making it really easy for the Cavs to defend. And they're not a good defensive team. They shouldn't be looking this good defensively in this series in the Eastern Conference Finals at this point. And they are partially because Boston, you guys are just missing a t- ton of shots in these two away games. So hopefully now back in Boston, they're going to look at this and be like, okay, it's going to kind of bounce back to the norm here and we're going to aggress to the mean a little bit. I think that's going to be a big thing for them because you can't make it easy on Cleveland like this. You said they're not good at making decisions. You've got the set screens. And also, if you want to tire LeBron James out a little bit and make it so that he's the most tired player, as he's been saying, you want him to do that by expending energy defensively and not having it on the offensive end too. That, absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the best ways to play defense is to have the other guy work uh, when he's on the defensive end. That's for sure. And we we saw in the home games, the games one and two, that LeBron will be part of the defensive failures. So he'd rather conserve his his legs for the offensive end. For Cleveland, I think they still have to keep on hunting those mismatches. They are uh, they really just demolished Terry Rozier uh, for long stretches. LeBron, he was rough the other night. Yeah, LeBron would just get that switch. And the Celtics the Celtics have been so 
in tune with switching everything that I just think it's too late in the, in this entire process to do that. Uh, so the Cavaliers are going to get LeBron switched onto Rozier whenever Rozier is on the floor. Then what do the Celtics do? They have that so-called scram switch that's been become popularized where, so LeBron switches and, and gets Rozier on the switch. Then uh, Aaron Baines, Switches with Rozier quickly before LeBron can do anything. The Celtics have been really good at that all season long. Then I saw, I think, a couple of instances where the the Cavaliers can counter that by even picking the guy that's coming over to switch somehow, or or, or setting up so far well, away where that that takes too long. It, it also helps when you have Tristan Thompson, who is a really good screener and a very willing screener, where he can do that other off-ball movement, that second uh, screen action off of things that cause it where those guys can't do that scram switch like you were saying. Yeah, no, it's true. So uh, Thompson, it's funny, man. It's something about playing Boston, something about playing, about playing Al Horford, He's he's been re-energized. He's a guy that hasn't been able to play – for uh, stretches, you saw him like fall out of the rotation in the yeah. playoffs at times, and he looked not good in games one and two at all. And he's kind of had this reemergence. And you had to figure going into this series a little bit that he was going to be really key for him, and they're kind of living and dying by him right now, whether he's playing well or not. Yeah, so that's going to be a tough matchup for Boston. Cleveland can just if they can keep getting that energy out of Tristan Thompson, we'll see. Wild card. This is weird to say. Wild card for the Celtics. If they can get uh, Shane Larkin back, then that is actually a good thing. It, weird for me to say that in a conference finals against a LeBron team that Shane Larkin could be a difference maker. The thing is his energy can be a big difference. And who knows? Who knows? It, there have been times where the Celtics have looked dead. And throughout the regular season – Shane Larkin has come in and injected energy and gotten a lethargic team to kind of wake up a little bit. So maybe a little injection of Shane Larkin energy could be something that wakes the Celtics up in a, a, a second quarter doldrum. So we'll see that. Uh, but I think honestly, it really just boils down to the Celtics play really well at home. They feed off of that home crowd. They feed off of that positive energy that comes off of the crowd, uh, versus the negative energy of the, Playing on the road, they, they, they really, they, when the crowd is anticipating a good play and the ball is moving well and you can feel that crescendo, uh, I think that for these guys, it really, really means a lot more than it might to other, other players. So I still think in the end that Boston holds at least this game and will have a chance to close it out. They, I think also, side note, and I don't know if you agree with this, they need to win game six in Cleveland because I don't know if they can beat LeBron in a game seven. So I, I was going to ask you about that. I have two questions for you. Is basically whoever wins game five going to win the series, do you think? Yeah, totally. Is it, is it kind of as simple as that? I, I, I totally think it is, I think, because the Celtics have at least two chances, and they do feel good at home. And so if, if they win game five, then I, I, do Maybe. That they, I do believe that they can win a game six on the road, uh, even as bad as they've played. I think they can find that that thing. But – if they lose, then they've got to they got to win that game on the road with with that added pressure. And I don't I don't think in that situation it's as easy for them. So uh, I, I think it's game five winner wins the series. Yeah, and I mean LeBron in a game seven, even though you know uh, Boston as of now, when you're all probably listening to this, is nine and zero at home. It's LeBron in a game seven, and I don't think you want to kind of bank on your current postseason record because he's LeBron, and it's sometimes as simple as that. I think and 
So that's why I kind of look at it this way. You know, yeah, you know, I still like them probably at home in a game seven, but I, it might be a coin flip versus having a significant advantage. And I'll be curious if it does get there, what the betting lines and everything will be on it. Cause it seems like it would be. And you'd think being the home team and the higher seed, you'd feel comfortable going into that. But like you're saying right now, I don't think Boston fans and Boston people are going to be whatsoever. No, no. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see. Uh, I think everybody in Boston is just kind of like, I mean, there's, you're caught up in the midst of it, but at the end you say, eh, all right, you know, hey, look, they overachieved. No matter what happened, they overachieved. So it's kind of like house money here for the team at this point? It's been house money, man. It's been house money. They're, they're riding high. So they're coming out winners no matter what. Okay. That's been the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you do not know who I am, I am John Corrales. At Reds Army underscore John on Twitter, co-host of the Lockdown Celtics podcast, if you haven't figured that out by now. And you can find myself on RedsArmy.com and on Boston.com. And I'm Jake Madison at Nola Jake on Twitter, editor over at LockdownPelicans.com, host of the Lockdown Pelicans podcast. The big boss, David Locke, has the Thursday show tomorrow. Be sure to tune in to that. This is the Lockdown NBA podcast here on the Lockdown Podcast Network.